The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Charles Benbrook. He is an agricultural economist and visiting professor at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom. He is also one of the researchers on the Children's Environmental Health Project on a project titled Herbicides and Adverse Birth Outcomes. He is a former research professor at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Harvard University, as well as a master's and Ph.D. in agricultural economics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Benbrook was also the scientific advisor for the Oregon-based nonprofit organization, The Organic Center. He spent 18 years working in Washington, D.C. on agricultural policy and regulation, during which time he directed the National Academy of Sciences Board on Agriculture. Welcome, Dr. Benbrook. Thank you, Melinda. I want to know how someone who is an agricultural economist who has worked in Washington in regulatory affairs comes to be interested in organic agriculture. Well, organic farming has been around a, a long time as a systematic and principle-based uh, approach to food production. Some people can trace the history of organic farming back a uh, 100 years and in fact, most of the food grown by humanity over the ages has been, in effect, produced organically. So it's one of the alternative systems of food production that has certain advantages, certain disadvantages, and, and has been systematically studied as a way to place into perspective the pros and cons of different ways to grow food. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were in Washington, D.C., you served on the National Academy of Sciences Board of Agriculture. What was your role there? I was the executive director of the board, so I was responsible for managing the activities of the staff, which supported the various project committees that we put together. When I started at the NES Board on Agriculture in 1985, there was a staff of about three people and, and oh, maybe four or five ongoing projects. and. Seven years later, when I left, we were up to 23 people in the professional staff and probably had at least 15 projects going on at, at the time. So we, throughout my seven years at the NAS, we were in a pretty steady growth phase. We were successful in raising substantial funds from both government and foundations so we could broaden our portfolio of projects. and. So it gave me a really a unique opportunity to meet and work with a cross-section of the top scientists in, in the United States and a few international scientists on the important agricultural science and technology issues of the day. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because you got to witness how research was applied to become policy. Would that be fair? Oh, absolutely. And one of the most important reports that was started during my tenure as the uh, 
ED of the Board on Agriculture came out in 1993, actually a couple of years after I had left, but the project started when I was still there, and it, it produced the report called Pesticides in the Diets of Infants and Children. It was a very important, well-received report that provided some detailed policy guidance to the Congress to resolve a serious conflict in two federal statutes, one being the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and the other, the FIFRA Act, or the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. And so in these two federal statutes, one told EPA to jump to the left, and the other told EPA to jump to the right. And so EPA really was stuck between some statutory conflicts in these two federal laws, and the EPA, in effect, provided funds or hired the National Academy of Sciences, the Board on Agriculture, to conduct a study of the underlying issues and come up with a set of recommendations to the Congress and the executive branch to fix this problem and modernize both the scientific basis for the setting of tolerances for cancer-causing pesticides and, and resolve this vexum conflict in these two federal statutes. So the, the committee did just that. It did an exhaustive and detailed review of the underlying issues, described how this conflict came about in two existing federal laws, and recommended a specific set of amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act and other amendments to the FIFRA statute, which would harmonize them and modernize the approach that the EPA took in regulating pesticides known to pose a potential risk of cancer as a result of residues in food. Well, those recommendations were almost verbatim moved into the Food Quality Protection Act, an important piece of federal legislation passed in 1996 by a unanimous vote of both houses of Congress. And in fact, the Food Quality Protection Act passed the U.S. Senate in seven seconds. which is pretty remarkable given that the substance of the bill had been intensely debated for 15 years Mm. prior to the passage of this legislation. But because there was such broad acceptance and support for the recommendations in this 1993 NAS report, the recommendations move right into the language of the bill, and and the Congress just said, well, we've thought about this long enough. It's time to pass it, and that's exactly what happened. You know, I still go back to that 93 report. It is one of the best that I've seen in pleading a case for feeding children organic food. We certainly don't want our children, our most vulnerable members of our population to be exposed to cancer-causing substances. So I want to thank you for your work on that. And ironically, you know, that's over three decades ago. And now you're working as a member of the science team on the Children's Environmental Health Network project titled Herbicides and Adverse Birth Outcomes. And I just want to let our listeners know that there's a wonderful website, which I will provide a link to, where we can see just what the issues are with regard to birth defects, low birth weight, when children are exposed to these toxic compounds. So thank you for your work on that. Well, and also thanks to the wonderful committee of scientists that did the the heavy lifting, and the chairman of that uh, committee was a man you know, Dr. Phil Landrigan, the uh, dean of the Global School of Public Health at, at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. Right. 
Yes, and also researchers in the Midwest who have seen the birth defects and who cared enough to ask the question, why are we seeing this here and what is causing this? So this is important. And it feeds into your other research that you've done, which has to do with monitoring the amount of herbicides that have been used, especially in the Midwest, because we are the corn and soybean belt, with genetically modified crops, and we were promised that genetic modification would result in less herbicide use, but what your research has found is that actually genetically modified crops have led to an increase in herbicide use, mainly because of weed resistance. Well, that, that's right. I mean, it's not really my research. It's just the what the official USDA pesticide use surveys show in terms of the trend in herbicide use in corn and soybean production since 1996, which was the year that Roundup Ready or or glyphosate-resistant soybeans came onto the market. Corn followed two years later. So basically, since the mid-1990s, genetically engineered corn and soybeans have come to dominate the market and, and account now for something like 97 or 98% of the soybean acreage planted and perhaps 95% of the corn acreage. Um, In the early days, Monsanto and and the other companies in the biotech market and the trade associations and industry groups that were promoting this technology, they promised that it, it would reduce pesticide use. And so I started monitoring the USDA data and studying the labels the herbicide labels that governed applications of glyphosate. And it was pretty clear to me that the technology wasn't going to reduce herbicide use and really couldn't because glyphosate is a moderate to high-dose herbicide. It's applied by farmers somewhere between two-thirds of a pound of active ingredient per acre to three-quarters of a pound. This is a single application. Some farmers apply it twice and a few even three times. But That's the rate of application of glyphosate, and it replaced herbicides that were being applied at a tenth of a pound per acre or even one one-hundredth of a pound per acre. The so-called sulfonylurea herbicides all were applied at just a few one-hundredths of a pound per acre. So just common sense said to me, if you're replacing herbicides applied at a tenth of a pound per acre or less with one applied at two-thirds of a pound per acre, how is that going to reduce herbicide use? Well, of course, it didn't. And, in fact, herbicide use started to go up fairly sharply by around the year 2000, which would have been the fourth year that Roundup Ready soybeans were planted in some parts of the country. And by then, the communities of weeds or the mix of weed species in soybean fields planted to Roundup Ready seeds had shifted towards to favor types of weeds that weren't as sensitive as others to glyphosate herbicides. This is, you know, mother nature doing her thing, you know, survival of the fittest. In addition, after a few more years of applying glyphosate herbicides, some weed species actually morphed into, through a mutation, to a genetically resistant form of the weed that just simply was no longer sensitive to glyphosate herbicide. We saw the first glyphosate-resistant weed from use on Roundup Ready soybeans was documented in 2001 in the state of Delaware. 
It was a field that had been planted for the fifth year in a row with Roundup Ready soybeans. That was a dark day in the history of agricultural biotechnology because weed scientists had actually predicted that it wouldn't take more than four, five, six years of continuous use of a Roundup Ready crop to trigger the emergence of resistant weeds. And, Melinda, this is despite the fact that Roundup had been used in U.S. agriculture since 1974, Hmm. and there had been essentially no glyphosate-resistant weeds all the way up until 2001. And the reason that changed is that the commercial introduction of genetically engineered crops dramatically changed uh, how glyphosate was applied, and it dramatically increased the selection pressure on weed communities, and this led to the selection for genetically resistant weeds. And now, you know, 16 years later, we have a a half dozen so-called super weeds that are no longer controlled by glyphosate and which are, in fact, resistant to essentially all other registered herbicides. So farmers that have those sorts of weeds in their fields, they have a real problem. Mm -hmm. And those of us who live in the Midwest or in any part of the country where these crops are grown are also being placed at higher risk because now what's going to happen is we're going to be using more herbicides together. So the EPA is not looking at synergies, so we're adding more herbicide uses, but we're not looking at those health effects of those combinations of herbicides. Right. So there's really two, two things are going on. Because of this technology, farmers have become largely dependent on herbicides for weed control as opposed to using herbicides as one tool in an integrated set of weed management practices that would include some tillage, some crop rotation, some cover crops, and other non-chemical approaches. This is the so-called many little hammers approach to weed management, which is what university weed management specialists are recommending that farmers adopt now to deal with the superweed problem. But two things are going on. Farmers are more reliant on herbicides. They're applying more of them and more total weight of herbicides per acre. So there's a greater load of herbicides in the environment and hence new ways for people to be exposed to it. But the other big change that scientists working in this area on the public health side are very concerned about is that genetic engineering technology and the planting of these herbicide-resistant crops allows farmers to spray herbicides for up to two months after the crop is germinated, well into the growth cycle of the crop, well into the summer. So Roundup Ready soybeans planted throughout the Midwest can be sprayed with Roundup into July. So before genetic engineering technology came on to the market, in any part of the Midwest, most herbicides would be applied in about a six-week window. And that would be a few weeks before planting to a week or so after planting before the crop has emerged. That's sort of your heavy herbicide spray period. Now, there were a few products that were available for post-emergent use, but they didn't really account for a large percent. But after the approval of Roundup Ready crops, you have most of the herbicide being applied after the crop emerges, and that herbicide spray window, which used to be about six weeks, 
is now almost four months. So what the practical significance of that is that in the rural Midwest, women in the first trimester of pregnancy really only had to worry about a six-week window starting in in late April through the middle or, or third week of May when most herbicides were applied. But now we're really talking about a window that extends from April all the way to almost the 1st of August. So many, many more women that are pregnant and in the first trimester of pregnancy, which is the period of, of greatest risk, coincide with the heavy herbicide spray season. Well, I will make sure that we provide our listeners with links not only to the Children's Environmental Health Network work that you're doing, but also a fantastic report and webinar link in which you participated with As You Sow, and it will help our listeners better see just how much herbicide is being used and the risks to public health. But we have other topics that we have to talk to, so I have to let that one rest for just a moment and remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Chuck Benbrook. He is an agricultural economist, visiting professor at Newcastle University in the United Kingdom, and director of Benbrook Consulting Services. Now, you are one of the lead authors in a brand new report that has just come out, and it's about the fatty acid and public health benefits of dairy products from 100% forage-fed cows. Of course, we like organic 100% forage-fed cows because those animals are not going to be given antibiotics and hormones, and there are other issues why organically managed animals have an advantage from a public health perspective. But it seems that forage is the magic ingredient here. Tell me about this research and why our listeners need to know. Glad to, Melinda. I've been studying the impact of agricultural production methods and technology and seed breeding and animal genetics on the nutritional quality of food for 20 years or so now. It's a very important area, and I think the public does not have a good appreciation of how the nutritional quality of many of the common foods in the American diet have changed over the last 30 years and in far too many cases changed for the worse. One of the biggest changes is in the quality of animal products, meat, eggs, milk, other dairy products. And the changes in the nutritional quality of animal products have been brought about by big changes in how animals are managed and how they're fed. When you take an animal like a dairy cow or a sheep or a beef cow that evolved eating grass and legume forages and put them into a confined animal feeding operation with a, a ration that's built on corn and soybeans, as opposed to forages, you do several things, not just to the health of the animal, but also to the nutritional quality of the products from that animal. And specifically what the new paper we have coming out covers is the impact of moving lactating dairy cows, milk cows, while they're milking, onto a 100% grass or forage-based diet 
where there's no grain, no oats, barley, corn, soybeans in the ration. So it's really moving the cow back to its historic or traditional diet. Two things tend to happen when farmers do this. There is a reduction in the average amount of milk produced each day. It might be a reduction of 20% to 30% uh, typically. But there's also a big increase in the quality of the milk. The protein level usually goes up about 25%. The total fat level goes up, again, by about 25% from on the order of 3% butterfat to 4% butterfat. But even more significantly, the quality of the fat in the milk dramatically changes. And in particular, within what's called the polyunsaturated fatty acids, Now, there's two general and important types of polyunsaturated fatty acids in food and in milk. One is the so-called omega-3 class of fatty acids, and the other is the omega-6 fatty acids. And despite the fact that these different fatty acids share several similarities, their biological role when consumed by humans and their biological impacts are quite different. And while... The human body absolutely has to get some omega-6 and some omega-3 from our diet in order to remain healthy. It turns out that the balance of these two fatty acids, the omega-6 fatty acids and the omega-3 fatty acids, is very important in terms of health outcomes in human beings. What's happened in the typical American diet as a result of shifting livestock from their traditional forage-based feeds to mostly corn and soybean-based rations is that we've driven way up the omega-6 fatty acids in meat, milk, and eggs and driven down the omega-3 levels. So this ratio of omega-6s to omega-3s has gone way up. So in a paper that I published with a team of scientists in 2013 in PLOS One, a well-respected general science journal, we reported on several hundred samples of organic whole milk that was tested for the balance of uh, omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids compared to conventional whole milk that was processed in basically the same plants and at the same time. And in the conventional whole milk, there was the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids was about 5.7 to 1 or 5.7. So someone having an 8-ounce glass of whole milk from a conventionally managed cow was getting close to 6 units of omega-6 fatty acids for every unit of omega-3s. And that's not an outrageously imbalanced mix of fatty acids, but it's certainly not as good as it could be. In the organic whole milk, on the other hand, because organic cows have to be allowed access to pasture during the summer, and organic farmers tend to rely much more heavily on grass and legume-based forages during the rest of the year as well, the milk from the organic cows had an average of a ratio of 2.3 to 1. So this is a very significant drop in this key metric of fat quality of milk from 5.7 to 2.3. And when we reported that, it was 
relatively new information that a lot of people were not aware of, and I think the scientific community is still trying to put into perspective the public health benefits associated with that kind of a shift. Well, it turned out that the Organic Valley brand of milk, which is put out by the Crop Cooperative uh, based in Wisconsin, they had some farmers that actually preferred to feed their cows 100% grass-based and legume-based feeds because they felt it was healthier for the cows and healthier for their land. And because of growing consumer interest in grass-fed both beef and and milk, uh, Organic Valley started a 100% grass milk program in 2014. And between 2014 and 2016, they tested over 1,100 samples of grass milk from about 160 of their co-op farmer members. They provided me and my science team with access to the raw data on these 1,100 samples of 100% grass milk, and we conducted a similar analysis to what we did in the, the 2013 paper. And really, to our amazement, the shift to 100% forage-based feeds drops that ratio all the way down to 0.9, so it's actually less than one. So a person having an 8-ounce glass of 100% organic grass milk is getting more omega-3s than omega-6s. And mm-hmm. this is hugely important because this imbalance in omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids plays a direct role in cardiovascular disease risk, the risk of diabetes, some of the aging processes, and also in development during infancy and childhood. Absolutely. Uh, So in our new paper, we actually model the impact of a consumer choosing grass milk-based dairy products. So this would be whole milk, cheese, butter, yogurt, ice cream, compared to whole milk but conventional milk-based dairy products, the same suite of products, And our conclusion is just switching from conventional milk to grass milk goes almost halfway to lowering an individual's excessively high ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids, which is the case today. Most Americans are about at 15 to 1, which is far too much omega-6 relative to omega-3. We'd like to see people get down to around 2 Current science suggests that there are no additional heart health benefits for human beings after they drop their omega-6 to omega-3 ratio down to 2. So switching to grass milk products gets a person that's at about 15 today all the way down to 4, most of the way to this heart health target level of 2. So that is a, a very significant nutritional and public health gain. And as far as I know, it marks the most important nutritional difference in an organically grown and certified food, in this case, uh, Organic Valley certified 100% grass milk, and a conventionally produced uh, food. Dr. Pepperick, unfortunately, our time is up. But in summary, for our listeners, there are two exciting new pieces of research. One certainly has to do with the effects of herbicides and birth outcomes. And the second is this truly important nutritional study looking at how we aren't just what we eat, but we are what our animals eat. So we will provide a link to that paper showing that 
Fat may not be the enemy we used to think it is. It matters where the fat comes from and what the animal was eating. So I want to thank you very much for this paper. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thanks, Dr. Benbrook, for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda. 